We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. We're actually going to be starting in verse 22 this morning. Uh, we'll come back to the, the couple of sections before um, Robbie next week will we'll talk about those. Um, but we just felt like blasphemy uh, of the Holy Spirit in this whole situation that Jesus is dealing with here it fits really well with um, how the questions about fasting and about Sabbath. And so we're, we're tackling this one first, then we'll go back, and then we'll jump back forward. So um, would you pray with me? Father, I... I need your help this morning to communicate effectively. We need your help to understand your truth. And so God, I know that there's likely chaos going on in many minds here this morning, in many hearts. And in others, there's apathy. And so God, what I'm asking is by the power of you, Holy Spirit, that you would that you would come in to our hearts and our minds, that you would give us clarity, and that you would awaken and stir our hearts to see how big these things are that we are discussing. And they're not big because we think they're big. They're big because they come from you. Help us to see that and love that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've seen, as Robbie uh, mentioned last week, things have kind of taken a turn here for, for Jesus, that there was a time where the Pharisees and the scribes were kind of observing what Jesus was doing and kind of checking him out, listening to his teachings. They would um, push back a little bit. They would ask some questions. Um, and then they started asking questions about the law and about like, how, um, why is it that, that they don't fast and, and why is it that it seems like he doesn't obey the Sabbath? And so they start asking these questions. But what's happening here is the shift from kind of observation to attacking. And so now they are looking and seeking to discredit Jesus in any way that they can. And so um, they are in, they're in full attack mode at this point. And this is, uh, this is what's continuing on as it escalates in this passage. It says in verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What's interesting about this as things have shifted is that this is no longer about what, he, what Jesus is teaching or what he is doing. It's about who he is. In a, in a strange way, but a fascinating way, they have finally come around to what Jesus has been saying all along. 
that the question isn't about Sabbath or about fasting or about the law or about his teaching with authority. The question is about who Jesus is. And so as he has answered all of their questions with responses like that of, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking these questions. You would be asking bigger questions. They finally get around to addressing the real issue. And they accuse Jesus of coming from Satan. As the scribes they come down from Jerusalem and they say Jesus is possessed by Satan. Now this this is an interesting accusation and it's not completely illegitimate. And the reason why I say that is because what they're trying to do is find an explanation for how it is that Jesus is able to do the things he is doing. And what's interesting about that is that sometimes there are accusations lobbed at the Bible and saying, well, all these were all myths and, you know, Jesus, how do we really know Jesus went about healing people or about doing all of these miracles? Well, one of the ways that we know is the testimony of those who didn't believe in him. And so this is one of those times where the scribes are accusing Jesus. They have to come up with a reason why he's able to do these other things. If you think about it, if they didn't believe he was doing those things, if they didn't see it for themselves, they would have just marched forward the people who weren't healed. Right? Like, so they would have just said, like, as people are saying, have you seen this man? Like, he's healing people. He, he made the paralyzed man walk. And if the scribes are just trying to discredit him, they just march forward that paralyzed guy and say, look, no, he's still paralyzed. Or that guy over there, he still has leprosy. Or this guy over here, he's still blind. But they, they can't do that because those people are healed. And so what the scribes have to do is they have to give an explanation as to why Jesus is able to do these things. How is it he's able to cast out demons? How is it that he's able to heal? How is it that he's able to declare these things and do these powerful things? And the answer they come up with is, well, he must be from Satan. He's possessed by Satan. And so Jesus answers back in parables, which I just love. Like Jesus doesn't lash back out he doesn't even really defend himself. He just responds very matter-of-factly and very logically to their wild accusations. He talks about a kingdom divided cannot stand. He talks about a house divided cannot stand. And then he says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. So what Jesus is doing is through a parable, he's kind of humoring them. He's saying, okay, your theory, your theory is that I belong to Satan. That's how I'm able to cast out demons. That's how I'm able to, to do these miraculous things. Okay, let's go with that. If that's the case, then Satan's kingdom is coming to an end because Satan is fighting against himself and a kingdom divided can't stand, a house divided can't stand. And if I really am from Satan, then Satan's kingdom is, is in trouble because it's divided. So it's a wild accusation. It, it makes no rational sense. But then he says, but, and then he offers another suggestion. So here's your option, but, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So he's offering the other option. Okay, so theory number one 
makes no sense. Because if I'm with Satan, why would, I, why would I be attacking Satan? That means trouble anyway for him. But theory number two, I'm not working with the house of Satan. I have come to plunder his house. I've come to take back those who are in captivity. I've come to do that. And because I've come to do that, I must first bind the strong man. So if you're looking for a reason as to why I'm dealing with these unclean spirits and why I'm commanding them to leave, it's because I have come to bind the strong man, to defeat the enemy, so I can plunder his house. That sounds strange, right? We don't usually think of Jesus and describe that in terms of plundering. Like that feels like, that feels like Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. Like people who don't have any right to this thing. Like they, they go in, they tie up the guards of the house, and then they go and they just steal all the stuff. And so that's why I think even some people have read this and just assumed like that can't be Jesus that's doing the plundering. Except I think it's very clear that he is. And what he's saying is the goods that he's plundering, like what is he plundering from this house? He's plundering you. He's plundering me. He's taking God's children back. And that sounds strange too. So because what Jesus is setting up in this parable, he's saying this house belongs to Satan and all of you are in it held captive. We are captives of Satan apart from Christ. And that seems strange. So we say like, well, aren't we all, like, don't we all belong to God? Well, in one sense, yes, we are all created in the image of God. We all are, uh, belong to him in that sense that we're created in his image. That's why we value everyone's life. It doesn't matter what someone believes. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter what value they give to the world. None of that matters. We value every single life because every single life is created by God in his image. But the Bible is also clear that we are all by nature separated from him. We are captives of the prince of this world. Paul says this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The state of all mankind apart from Christ is children of wrath. Humankind is not neutral. We don't start with a blank slate. We are not just people who are going along, walking along the earth, minding our own business when all of a sudden bad things happen to us and we got put in the wrong situations with the wrong people and the wrong crowd. And then all of a sudden this stuff started coming out of me. And so Jesus is, is really rescuing innocent people. Like he's coming in there and he's saying like, well, you didn't mean to do any of this stuff. Like, let me get you out of this bad situation so you can, so you can be good. The imagery that we have is that Jesus doesn't rescue innocent people he rescues the rebels. We don't start with the blank slate. And that's, that is in and of itself one of the biggest obstacles for many of us in believing the gospel. Not just unchurched, like non-Christians, but also churched Christians. Like we struggle with this. We don't like the idea of thinking that we are slaves to sin. 
Because we like to think of ourselves as autonomous. We like to think that we are in control. And if we just try hard enough, then we can start doing the right things. And if we just put enough things in place, we can make other people behave and think the way that they're supposed to think and behave. And we don't realize we're not in control. Like control is just an illusion. How many things have to go in a direction that you didn't plan for before you see that? How many times do you have to promise yourself you won't do this thing again and then you do it before you see that you don't have control even over yourself? That you are not your own. You are held captive. How many times do you have to say, why do I always do that? Why can't I help myself? It's almost like you're on autopilot before you can, you, you can even stop yourself. You, you respond maybe in anger or defensiveness or stubbornness or hardened a hardened heart. It's because we're not in control. The Bible says we are ruled by our desires. Or, or maybe you wonder, maybe you're not even there, maybe you wonder why the things you think are no big deal seem to hurt other people. You say things that offend other people, but that's because they're too easily offended. You can't remember the last time you apologized to anyone, but that's not a big deal because you really can't remember the last time that you were wrong. Or you keep pursuing meaning in bad relationships and bad decisions, but you think it's just a matter of time before you find the right person or the right situation. We're chained. Unable to break free, we're held captive by Satan, the strong man. We have no hope against him in our own strength because in our flesh, we don't want to be free. He is too good of a deceiver and we are too easily deceived. Because here's the thing about the enemy and the picture that is being painted in scripture is we believe his lies because we want to believe his lies. We want to believe that we're basically good. We want to believe that we're smarter than everybody else and that we can figure out a better way. We want to believe that we know ourselves better than anyone else. We want to believe that we are the creators of our own truth. We want to believe that whatever feels good and makes me happy, makes us happy in the moment, is what's good for everybody. We're slaves. By nature and by choice, we are held captive by the prince of darkness. And we need a rescuer. We need a deliverer. And he comes in the form of Jesus. God taking on flesh and walking among us. He's come to set the, the captives free. I, Isaiah 49 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. So Jesus is hearkening back to this. And what's interesting about this is that's, that's the ESV, the English Standard Version. The NIV actually chooses a different word instead of pray. It says this, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. 
I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. So in the NIV, it uses plunder for that because the idea, the picture here is God telling the people of Israel, like, I know that you are enslaved to this. I know that you lament that you can't obey me. You can't fully follow me. And I know that you grieve for this and for your children and for your children's children. And he's saying, if you feel bound, if you feel held in captivity, and you're wondering who could possibly take us, who could possibly rescue us, Is it even possible? He says, yes, it is possible. He will plunder his children. He will take them back. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Listen, the hope of Jesus is that he has defeated the enemy. Like, we, we look at Jesus and we want to follow him because, oh, you know, he's a good teacher. He teaches some of these things. And, and, and it seems like being a good person to follow him. And I like some of the stuff he talks about when he talks about the poor, when he talks about righteousness or whatever. Like, I, I like some of these different things. But what Jesus is saying is, I've come to set you free. I haven't come to just improve your life or to make you think about things differently. You are held captive with no hope of being set free. And I've come and I have defeated the enemy and released you. It's foreshadowed from the beginning. When in Genesis 3, when the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's foreshadowing what Christ will do to Satan. And then in Revelation 12, it happens in the end. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. What Jesus is saying here is this time has come. When he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying it has happened. It has come. It is happening in their very midst. The kingdom of God has come. This means Satan has no power over those who have been delivered by Christ. Every demon that is cast out is a decisive blow to Satan. Every illness that is healed, every sin that is forgiven, it is all evidence that the battle is won. Satan's kingdom is crumbling. God's kingdom has come. The strong man has been bound, and those who trust in Christ have been set free by him. We were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is what salvation is. Okay, listen. 
It is not primarily you making a decision for Christ. I'm going to say that again. Salvation is not primarily you making a decision for Christ. It is not you going along about your business, living your life, having a fine life, being basically good, and then you hear about Jesus and you say, ah, oh, that, that sounds interesting. That seems to fit with what I was thinking, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to align with him. The picture is that you were held captive in a pit by nature and by choice, delusional in your own sin, deceived, drunk on your own desires and passions, believing lies of the enemy, the one that's holding you captive, believing his lies about who you are. And then Jesus comes and he binds the strong man, defeats him, and releases you from the chains of captivity and delivers you home. And as you stand with him, you are given new eyes to see. Like coming out of a dungeon into bright light. You were by nature children of wrath, but now in Christ you have a new nature. This is so important in understanding how to follow Jesus is realizing that he not only forgives you, he not only redeems you, he is sanctifying you, but he also defeated the only one that ever held you captive. There is no power over those who are in Christ. But he knows that not everybody believes this. And he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So he's saying, whatever lies you've believed, whatever sins you've committed, whatever you have done, I have set you free and I've conquered the power over you in that. Like I've conquered even death. I've conquered evil. I've conquered everything for you. You are free. Except for this. And so this is that thing that we've referred to in the church as the unforgivable sin. And there's so many questions about this. Like what what is that unforgivable sin? What what does that mean that it's an eternal sin? And I want to make this simple because I think it is very simple. I think it is very straightforward. And we have to understand what is Jesus saying and who is he saying it to? Essentially, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting all the work we just talked about. So if you hear that and you hear as Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, you are all held captive. I have come to release you. Well, for those who believe they are in captivity, that is the greatest news in the world. But to others, it is at best confusing and at worst offensive. And so to reject that work and to say, no, that is not good work, that is evil, that is the work of the evil one, is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Pharisees were doing, calling Jesus unclean. They accused him of being of Satan. So they reject the work that he is doing. They reject him setting them free. They've hardened their hearts. Just imagine, they are so hardened, so brainwashed, they see their rescuer as the enemy. 
And if they do, they stay in captivity. They stay in their sin, and that state is eternal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it says they were, they were blinded by Satan. And therefore, in Romans 1, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this so labeled unforgivable sin, is the ultimate, continual, and final rejection of the Spirit's work to release you from captivity. And that can happen because you don't see the chains that ensnare you. It can happen because you've grown to love those chains. It can happen because to confess that you are a slave to sin is something that you're just not willing or able to do. But it is you declaring finally, I do not need a rescuer. I am not captive. I am in control. And it is a line in the sand. Jesus has invaded Satan's kingdom to plunder his goods and take us back. Luke 12, Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That one doesn't seem so outlandish. But, um, but Mark 1, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Listen, the picture is that Jesus has invaded Satan's kingdom and he has released the captive children and set them free. And if you in your heart say, I, I am not captive, I do not need a deliverer, I do not need a rescuer, then Jesus is warning you that you will remain then by your choice in sin and in captivity for all eternity. But what's really important about this church is who he's speaking to. Because it's easy for us to hear that right there and to think of people in the outside world, people outside of this room in this moment. But I believe who Jesus is speaking to are the people in this room. Because he's talking to the scribes. He says, when he says about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he says he never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Who is saying that? The scribes. He's responding to them. The warning is strongest with the religious. The type of warning is for those who would find their hope in religion and not in knowing God. 
There are people who will be in churches across this country this morning worshiping God who will never experience freedom. They will choose the familiar chains of captivity over the radical freedom found in Christ. They will choose to run away from intimacy with God, run away from community, run away from repentance, and away from any conviction that would remind them of their captive state. And what's so sad and what grieves me so much is that these are people who have heard the word. They've seen transformation. They have intellectually or even behaviorally agreed with Jesus. But they have rejected his work of transforming their hearts. They see themselves as in control. They're comfortable in their own slavery. And so they remain in captivity and their enemy has not been defeated and they have not been set free. Now this is a dangerous thing to point out. This is a very hard passage to to preach and here's why. Because inevitably, those who worry that that might be them are typically the ones who shouldn't, don't need to worry about that. But the people that this is often referring to are the ones who won't hear it. And so that makes it Dangerous, And that makes it kind of a conundrum for me speaking. Like, what do you do when you have to declare a truth that you know that the people who, who don't, like the, the people who, for whom this should be an encouragement, that they should feel more secure in their, in their knowing Jesus, will actually start to worry and, and could be discouraged by it. But the people who desperately need to hear this won't hear it. What do you do? One thing you do is just trust the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I will do. And I'll ask this question. How do you know you belong to Jesus? Just think for a minute and be honest. And you're like, if there's ever a time to just be honest in your own mind and in your own heart, this is a time. No one's reading your mind. No, no, no human is reading your mind. We're not... Nobody's judging anything that comes into your mind. How do you know you belong to Jesus? How do you know you've been set free? How do you know you are saved? If the answer that came to mind is something that you have done or that you currently do, like I go to church, well, I try to be a good person, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized then I would encourage you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. their response to that question would be, I did all these things. But what Jesus responds with is, I never knew you. It's not about the things that you can do for God. It's about trusting him, being faithful to him. And you can't do that if you don't know him. 
Are you intimately connected with Jesus through the Holy Spirit or, or do you just believe things about him? Have you been set free from sin and the evil one or have you just modified your behavior and your language so that it comes more in line with most of what the Bible says? Do you talk like you know him or do you actually know him? I will tell you that as a teacher of the word, this question weighs heavily on my heart and mind every week. It's why the Bible says not many should desire to be teachers. It's because as I'm proclaiming these truths to you, as I'm trying to, to proclaim this and call you to live in light of these incredible truths, I have God who is listening to every word and knows my heart completely and knows every action. So I may be able to fool any of you. I may be able to fool myself, but I cannot fool God. And so I'm constantly asking myself as I get, dig into studying the passage and trying to teach these truths, I have to check myself constantly and saying, do you know this? Do you know the one who declares this truth? Because if I don't, then all I end up doing is getting up here and teaching a new law. All I end up doing is, is teaching you like, okay, well, this is what God means by sexual immorality. And this is what God means about our language. This is what God means about how we should use our money. And we just put this in a box and we just create for ourselves this new shiny new law that looks pretty good and we live for that and we miss Jesus. We must know him. Not just know about him, not just be like-minded with him, not just see ourselves as more on his side than against him, but actually know him. Because to know him is to be known by him and to be loved by him and to be set free. This is the incredible thing. What Jesus is declaring to them, he's not... This is not even a message of condemnation. What he's saying is it's a warning of if you don't know me, that's all you need to do. Be set free by him. And he's telling you, I've already defeated the enemy. I'm not even asking you to fight with me. Like you don't have to do anything. I've already defeated this enemy. You are free. And if you have experienced that, if you're in this room, and I pray that it's everybody in this room, if you've experienced that freedom, if you can look back and you say, I, I feel like I've experienced glimpses of that. But what's hanging you up is you feel like, ah, oh, but I'm not always there. And then I struggle. And then one day I'm doing great. And then the next day I'm struggling. And then like, that's normal. But if you've experienced that freedom, if you've had those moments And the Spirit is testifying on your behalf that you belong to God. And you are his child. You are no longer a slave to sin. So the calling is just to live in that freedom. I'm convinced that the reason why Christianity is falling out of favor in the United States is not because we don't have the right people in office it's not because we don't have the right legislation. It's not because of any political party. It is because our lives don't, our lives don't look any different than anybody else's. 
Think about it. We worry about the same things. We pursue the same things. We complain about the same things. We have fear over the same things. But if you look in Acts, what was so striking about them was how different they were. They didn't worry about the same things that everybody else worried about. They didn't, they didn't fear man. They were brought in front of people, were told, don't preach this message again or we're going to kill you. And they say, hey, thanks for the tip. And they go right back out preaching the gospel. They're free. And what people were looking at them from the outside, they were saying, how do they live like that? They're free. But we don't. So many of us are stuck living like slaves even though we're children. And we, it's because I think partly it's just so comfortable, Right? Like it just, it's so comfortable. It's what we know because by nature we are children of wrath. But then God says, I've given you a new nature. And we're like, yeah, but my old nature just feels so comfortable. So yeah, I believe that. I know that. But like it's just so much easier to get angry, you know, than, than, than to try to respond with compassion and patience. It's so much easier to complain than it is to rejoice. Gossip is so much easier than, than building up. Self-justification seems so much better and easier than, than trusting Christ to do it and laying myself out there. Taking control seems so much better than waiting on the Lord. It's just so natural. It's just easier to believe the lies of the enemy. That you're not being given enough or that God is holding out on you or that he couldn't possibly do this work in you. It's just so natural. And the reason why it's natural is because that is who we are in our flesh. Because by nature, that is who we are. But in Christ, we've been given a new nature. The image that I was getting is that with this being in a dungeon, imagine like, you know, a medieval movie where everyone's chained to the wall and you're all in this dark dungeon. And the difference is that there are people who are actually chained to the wall, but then there are those of us who have been born again, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've been set free. And our chains are free from the wall, but our hands are still up here. We just hold them up here because this is what we know. This is what's comfortable. This is what's natural. And so you have the rest of the people in captivity looking at you while you're saying, hey, there's freedom in Christ. And they're looking at you and going, you don't look any freer than me. Oh, no, no, I really am free. I'm really free. Well, then why are you still here? And we forget that what people desperately need, people who are held captive by their sin, people who don't see hope, people who think that they are completely lost and they have no idea how to get out, what they need more than anything is for the church to let their hands down and walk away from their chains. Because that's what they'll look at and they'll say, that's different. I can't do that. How do I do that? And you say, Jesus, he breaks your chains. And we show that and we live like that. And we remind ourselves constantly that we are not under the power of the evil one. He doesn't have any power over you. You don't have to believe his lies. 
You're free to walk away from them. And we do that by just walking day by day in the spirit and trusting him and not walking in our flesh. Like every moment we get, you get a million moments every day to choose. Am I going to walk in the spirit of my new creation or am I going to walk in the flesh and am I going to fall back in to the yoke of slavery? That's why Paul in Galatians said, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Am I going to, something comes up and I have a, a chance to respond negatively to it. And everything in my flesh wants to go right back into the old habits of, of complaining and of self-pity. And yet there's a different voice inside of me. One that's saying, you don't, you don't need to listen to that. That's not who you are anymore. That's an illusion. You aren't actually chained to that wall. You are actually free. And then faith is trusting in that and taking that step and believing him when he says that's true. And the more you obey him, the more you respond in faith, the more natural that will become. The more you seek to hear his voice and not just try to figure things out on your own, the more clearly you will hear it. Don't get caught in those traps. What lies are you believing right now? The enemy is an accuser and he's a deceiver and he's good at it. But he is a liar and he has no power because he's been defeated. One area in my life where this has come up that I just want to close with is hopefully just some help in walking in this. That if you, if you are a child of God, So many of us struggle with walking in freedom because we have replaced an old law with a new law. So we read the commands of scripture and they become yokes and burdens on us. So a clear, obvious example is when Jesus says, do not worry. That's a command. Do not worry. So I would assume that because Jesus said, do not worry, and because he is Lord, and because he has defeated the enemy, None of us worry. Right? Okay, good. I'm getting some vigorous nods. Excellent. All right. End of sermon. If you happen to be one of the people who still struggles with worrying, the way that we sometimes combat that is we, hear, we read that and we're like, oh, I'm worrying. Well, the Bible says do not worry. Oh, I should stop worrying. I really should stop worrying. And now you start worrying about the fact you're worrying so much. Right, which I think is a double sin. I don't know how that counts, but it's, it's not good. Like, it's not great. We'll just say that. So now you're worrying about that, and that causes you stress. And now you just feel like, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't belong to God. That is the enemy. The enemy will take that, and he'll start saying that to you. If you really believed, you wouldn't, you wouldn't worry. You must not know Jesus as well as you think you do. Here's the thing that's helped me. Every command in scripture is a promise that is fulfilled by Jesus. This is important. When he says, do not worry, he's not heaping another law on top of you and saying, 
Stop worrying. Like, I feel like I'm that way as a parent when I'm at the dinner table. I'm like, don't talk with your mouth full. 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 If you notice, like, sometimes people talk with their mouth full at my table. It drives me insane. And so you just, like, and so I sometimes read that into Jesus. So I worry, don't worry. Don't worry. Stop worrying. Stop it. Stop it. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is then the command, do not worry, he is telling you that he has already made that a reality and he's promised you that you can have a life without worry. It's a promise of a life fulfilled, not a burden of something you have to live up to. He is telling you, I've already done this for you. There's gonna come a day where you won't worry at all about anything. And so the reason he, he, so that's why he says, hey, look at the birds. Not one of them falls from the sky without, without God's say so. They all have plenty of food to eat and aren't you more valuable than birds? What is he doing? He's responding to the accusations of the enemy that are loud and, and boisterous and he's just speaking calmly and peacefully saying, no, that's not true. God's gonna take care of you. I mean, he tells you in 1 Thessalonians to rejoice always. Like, that's a command. Rejoice always. Why don't we obey it? Like, I've never met anybody who said, I feel like I've been rejoicing too much lately. I really could just use a day to grumble and complain. Like, I just need one of those days. Nobody does it. So then why do we fall into that? Because we believe the lies. We just believe the lies. That there's things to grumble and complain about. Like we don't see the glory of rejoicing always. And when we, and when we put that burden on us, we're like, all right, well, I got to stop grumbling. I gotta, I'm just going to rejoice. I'm going to find something to be happy about. I'm just going to grab on that. And then that lasts like 20 seconds until something comes into your mind that makes you want to grumble and complain. But what Jesus is saying is, I've already fulfilled this for you. There is coming a day where you will only rejoice. That is all you're going to do. And you can experience that now. Just lower your hands and walk away. You're not a slave to defensiveness. You're not a slave to grumbling and complaining. You're not a slave to slander and gossip. You're not a slave to addiction. You're not a slave to, to blasphemy of any kind. You're not a slave to any of those things. You are free if you are in Christ. You are free. And our lives on this earth are spent day after day after day reminding ourselves and one another of that incredible truth and living in that freedom and learning how to walk in it. And that explains why we struggle and why we have days where we believe them. Where we believe those lies, but we don't have to. So church, walk in that. Walk in that freedom. And in so doing, you set an example for your neighbors, for your children, for your coworkers of what it looks like to walk in freedom. Can you imagine if you finally break free from those chains? Have you ever done the thing where you stand in a doorway and you push your arms against the side really hard and then you walk away and then what do your arms do? They like float up. There's nothing making your arms do that. It's just you're so used to a certain situation, it's hard to learn how to walk in that. That's why we need each other. So let's do that for one another. 
Let's walk along. Let's remind each other of the grace that is offered, the freedom that is offered. Let's not heap burdens on one another. Every conviction is a reminder that you don't have to live like this. It's a reminder that there's going to come a day where you're free from that. It's a reminder that the enemy has been defeated. He has come to plunder the enemy's house, to release his captive children, and to bring them home. Let's pray. Father, we, we do struggle to believe the truth. We believe it in glimpses and in spurts, and some days it feels like nothing could possibly pry the truth out of our hearts, and then we have days where it feels so fragile. God, I pray that you would remind us that whether we feel fragile in it or we feel firm in it, that doesn't change how firm you are. That does not change the reality that you have defeated the enemy. You have have bound the strong man. You have defeated him. You have released us from captivity. You have forgiven us. You have set us free. You have redeemed us. And now we are learning to walk again. God, help us as we walk and we stumble along to help one another. Help us to build one another up. And God, let it be on display for a lost and hurting world to see that there is freedom to be found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.